0: This is from Matthew 5, 2 through 16. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others will value and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a blank basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.
1: Thank you, Rory. Now, I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with that text, right? Like at some point, maybe, um, um, again, I don't know everybody's story, but I would assume you've heard at least bits and pieces of that. Um, and so maybe it's not exactly new to us, this Sermon on the Mount. I mean, in fact, as a faith family, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount multiple times in our history. We've spent long periods of time where we've taken it verse by verse and walked all the way through, section by section, and all kinds of different accounts. But as, as we've talked about and as we're trying to do in this, this season together, we're trying to take a look at how our life can be built on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. How we can move from the simple things of the Ten Commandments that we talked about over the summer, this kind of foundational truths of how reality really exists, and actually live the life that we long for, right? A life of flourishing, a life that, like the psalmist says, that doesn't wither, right? That's built on something that actually flourishes. That whether whatever the season is, in season or out of season, our our leaves don't wither, but fruit is produced in our life. And so so as we kind of talk about today, I just want to kind of keep, I want you to keep that in mind, right? That we're, that we're trying to talk about the Sermon on the Mount in a way that maybe feels a little bit different um, than maybe kind of our, our, the way we've, we've talked about it before. Um, but there's a reason why it, and we'll get to it as we, as we jump in. But did you know this? Let me ask you this. This is, this is interesting. Did you know that for some 14 to 15 centuries, 1400 to 1500 years, The vast majority of the world was under the impression that the world existed only what we know of now as north of the equator, continuously from the east to the west. Do you know that? That Ptolemy's map, which I think we have a picture of, yeah, look at that. One of the first world maps, was actually in print and used for 14 or 15 centuries, not for a minute, but for a long period of time. This was a map that most of Europe and Eastern Asia operated under. Not just ideologically, but practically. The vision of the world here, it shaped their economics and their politics. It framed the questions they asked and the answers that they surmised. It impacted the innovation, explorative trade routes, and even aspirations and expectations of what life might be like, right? During the same millennia, under the influence of Ptolemy's model of the universe, the guy who made the map also made a model of the universe. People also believe that other planets in the sun revolved around the Earth. You might have remembered that from history class, right? Beyond the hubris of the assumption, which is kind of funny, like, hey, we're the center of the universe. This is where all of, our, all of us starts. Like, um, The ideas formed by such an image, again, shape the issues and opportunities of the day. Ptolemy's model helped influence what could be studied and how. Why and to what end we, we did our learning and what questions could be asked and the ones that actually could not be asked. The map and model were the navigational tools of the day. A day that lasted, again, some, depending on who you read, somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 years. And these, this map and model, these navigational tools, led people into the perceived problems and solutions that they faced. It influenced the dreams that they had and the complications of everyday existence. In other words, Ptolemy's map and model shaped the imagination of what we now call the Middle Ages. Now James K. Smith, who actually will be at our twin school, the kids' school, next week and is having a, like, a free lecture on, on Wednesday night, if anybody wants to go, let me know. But James K. Smith describes imagination as a kind of faculty by which we navigate and make sense of the world. So when we say that the imagination was influenced by these maps, we're not just saying like, some sort of like dreaminess. But we're rather saying the thing, the, the, the faculty that we use to make sense of our world, the way that the world registers to us, that, that the way that we enter into the world and make our life in the world is actually a, that it actually we do that through our imaginations. But often in ways that don't register, that fly below the radar of our conscious reflection. Much of our action is not the fruit of our conscious deliberation. Most people weren't thinking about the map and the model all the time, right? They weren't pulling it out everywhere they wanted to go, when they wanted to go make trades, when they, wanted to, when they were doing farm labor, when they were making the things that they were meant to make. But at the same time, much of what we do grows out of these passionate orientations to the world, these ways in which we think the world operates and exists. In short, our action emerges from how we imagine the world. How we imagine the world shapes how we live in the world. But our imagination isn't merely individual. It's not just about you and what you particularly in, uh, imagine, or I particularly imagine, but it's also influenced by our social imagination. Karen Swallow Pryor argues culture provides individuals with a precognitive framework, a framework that includes our unconscious, unarticulated, unstated, underlying assumptions that direct, shape, and form our thoughts and desires and imaginations in ways we don't necessarily recognize that think of these as the unseen parts that form the structure of a house. Kind of like the house that as, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about last week, either stands or falls. That when the way we build our house is through a rightly informed imagination. Our imagination impacts the way we build our house. So again, while not everyone was pulling out Ptolemy's pictures and charts on their daily existence, The individual and social houses of the day were constructed on and from a particular vision of how the world works. It's hard to believe, I know, but these concepts were ingrained as religious and educated facts for much of Europe and Eastern Asia for centuries. So ingrained into the heart were these maps and models that to challenge them was considered heresy at one point, which is why even a hundred years after both assumptions have been evidentially demonstrated as off the mark, completely wrong, we had circumnavigated the globe. We have recognized at some level that, that the sun is the center of the Earth and the and, or center of the universe and not the Earth. Even a hundred years after those discoveries had been affirmed, when Galileo offered to let people see for themselves a the universe different through his advanced telescope, offered the chance to look through the telescope themselves, which is a rare opportunity that we might fathom today, right? It'd be like being like. Here, pull back the curtain, and you get to see how the universe works, kind of. Like, you get to see the world completely new and different. There were actually people who refused to even peek. It's not that they just didn't believe him. They didn't even want to look and see if they might be wrong, right? Much of the educated or Western world prior to the Renaissance couldn't envision a world different, much less all that that world could contain. The things they didn't even know to ask or desire, beyond what the maps and models that had permeated their development for centuries had led them to. And the same thing is true for the disciples gathered around Jesus' feet on the mountainside. They were no less imaginatively blocked, ironically, by the maps and models of life with God and others perpetuated for nearly the same time frame. It's about 1,400 years from Moses to Jesus. For about that same length of time, the disciples have been hearing stories. They have had a world shaped and mapped for them by others. And here they sit in front of Jesus. They couldn't envision God's kingdom coming without a geographical, geo, geopolitical power center, right? None of them could, could have thought that the kingdom of God would come, and the nation-state of Israel wouldn't be reborn. They could not envision the kingdom's arrival mixed and muddied in the dirt of multiculturalism. God would never come back as part of just a kingdom in the midst of all the kingdoms. They could not envision the kingdom's arrival without perfect harmony, containing continued suffering and striving and sowing and laboring and wrestling. When Jesus comes back, when God comes back, everything is made whole and peaceful, right? They could hardly conceive of a kingdom that was not grand and gaudy, political or powerful, not a place but a people and relationship. And they certainly couldn't envision life with god and others where they were not the center and like the assumptions of the centuries that follow their navigational tools shaped everything about their daily living the economics they engaged in or did not the places they settled or did not the questions they asked the issues they perceived the solutions they sought like the systems of later centuries The disciples gathered around Jesus on the mountainside were bound by emotional or imaginative barriers. Myths of how the world was oriented, and thus anxious and restless, considering the resolutions of their perceived problems and opportunities never actually changed their life experience, right? I mean, you remember the way the first first century Palestines described, right? We've talked about this before, like, When Jesus arrives on the scene, especially when Jesus comes to a place of ministry, it's at a boiling point. The whole temperature of the place is raised up. There's contention between the Romans and between the the Jewish people and all sorts of factions within that and everything. The world that Jesus entered into was a world that felt like for the first century Palestinian that it was about to explode. And so there was something about the fact that they've had this, these, this faith for all these years, their life trying to build on this expectation of what the kingdom would look like and should look like, and yet when Jesus arrives, none of them got to see the fruition of it. Have you ever felt that way? Like you can't break through the problems or get to the treasure of the moment, maybe in a relationship with your spouse or your children, in your work or with your coworkers, employees or employers. Or even all societal and situational circumstances are recycled through our daily life. Have you ever felt like all you do is keep repeating the same thing over and again, keep running into the same wall over and over again, keep longing and looking for something, maybe even just seeing it just, just, just out there but never able to quite reach it? Well, welcome to humanity. <laughs> now, seriously, like, what is true of our collective existence prior to um, uh, Cobernicius and circumnavigation of the actual world and what was true of the first century Jews that made up Jesus' little band and interested crowds is true of you and I today. Both in the limitations of our big picture of the world and our daily living. So, whether it's the old world or an old covenant or old self, the move from what is perceived to what is revealed is fraught with anxiety. And so, what we're contending in this series is that these under the surface forces, which include frameworks of life that affect our imaginations, right? Form our imaginations. Have cultivated not a life of peace. Again, the first century Jew, the Jews that are following Jesus, who want the kingdom of God to arrive then, have been fighting for this kingdom's arrival for hundreds of years, who expected the kingdom's arrival in a certain way, who didn't get what they expected. That what they're after, the way they're after it, doesn't cultivate peace and flourishing in the presence of God, but rather an anxiousness and a restlessness. And much like the disciples listening to Jesus on the mountainside, in the words of William James Jennings, Christianity in the Western world lives and moves within a diseased social imagination. And as Pryor would suggest, it's, all, it's not simply that Christianity is infected by other ideologies and identities, other maps of the world. It's also that too often we don't recognize their undue influence on our beliefs, narratives, images, traditions, and institutions, in the practical and everyday ways in which we attempt to live by faith. It is that we don't understand how our imaginations are blocked. It's not intuitive. We're just caught up in it, right? And so one of the first things we notice when we start walking through the gates of awareness, like we talked about last week, and we start looking under the surface to our unsettledness, is that our anxiousness, our unrest, often is the fruit of what's called imaginative gridlock. Rabbi and family therapist Edwin Friedman argues that a hallmark of a person or people withering in anxiety and unrest is imaginative gridlock, is evidenced by three characteristics. See if any of these speak to your your relational world right now. The first kind of hallmark or demonstration of a life that's imaginatively gridlocked is Living a life on the unending treadmill of trying harder. Friedman describes the trying harder treadmill as a fly perpetually bouncing off a window it can see through, with the result that despite its thousands' eyes, its its perseverance gets it nowhere. Though it can see what's on the other side of the glass, the fly can. That's why it's going there, right? And wants what's on the other side. And it will give all of its effort, even to its own demise, it simply cannot force its way through the invisible barrier. Right? Have you ever felt like that in life? Have you ever been in a place in life that felt like that? The, yeah, that's right. The condition, says Friedman, is well known whether it's in marriages with partners who want to keep trying harder to change their partner, parents trying harder to change their children, therapists trying harder to change their clients, teachers trying harder to change their students, clergy trying harder to change their congregation. I never do that. um, Managers trying harder to change those they manage, CEOs trying harder to change their managers, consultants trying harder to change CEOs, and social scientists, this is kind of funny, who keep trying harder to explain what is happening and never actually do. (laughs) The treadmill of trying harder is driven again Friedman says by the assumption that failure to get what we want to see what we want take place is due to the fact that we did not try hard enough or that we did not use the right technique or we did not get the right or enough information that if we just tried harder my kids would do what I want them to do if I just try harder my boss will do what what I want him to do. If I could just figure out the right technique, my spouse would do what I want my spouse to do. If I could just get the right information, I could really lead this thing forward. My employees would know exactly what to do and how to do it. The assumption overlooks the possibility that thinking processes are stuck in imaginative gridlock. That is, that maybe our issue isn't our effort, but maybe it's our orientation. The way we orient ourselves to the world and others is actually the thing that's not working. The way we're relating to one another may actually be the thing that's broken. Maybe the way we're relating to ourselves. At its worst, the treadmill does what running in place often does. Do we have any treadmill runners in here? I've periodically ran on a treadmill. Um, there's one in my house that has a lot of dust on it. It's great. It's become a great storage space. Um, but when, you, when you're running on a treadmill, and if you haven't run on a treadmill, just pretend that you're somebody that runs and then doesn't run on treadmills. You fix your attention on an arbitrary and ultimately inconsequential goal when you're running on a treadmill, right? Like There's a difference between running around the neighborhood. You have a start and end point. You have a place where you're going, all that kind of stuff. When you're on a treadmill, the goal is some sort of, of distance or time over distance, Or like in life, like it's if this if I if I get to this point, if I get to my my one mile mark or my mile under 10 minute mark or whatever, like I'm kind of done on the treadmill. This is my goal. Or like in life, maybe it's a particular change in a specific person or situation. When we're running fixed in place, we're fixed on this kind of short term, intermediate kind of arbitrary goal. And we lose sight of the real reason we're running, which is health. Right. The real reason we're in relationship with others, which is wholeness, fullness, abundance of life, right? We miss the kind of big picture because we're fixated on what is perceived as the immediate goal. In the world, in, in Ptolemy's map and model was fixated, particularly on the Northwest Passage, connecting the East and the West. In doing so, their fixation, they nearly missed the kind of important accidental discovery of what was in the middle, which is us, right here. Hey, we're here. Yeah, we're in the middle. The Jewish people, likewise, were fixated on being ready for God's return. And so they were consumed with the rules and regulations that were assumed necessary for preparation. The 613 laws of the Pharisees. Missing the heart of God's experienced absence. Why God actually wasn't dwelling amongst them in the way they thought. The motivation for His promised return and the surprise of His actual presence with them. They missed it, right? They missed the big picture because they were fixated on the short-term goal on the treadmill. But if our fixation on goals, whether it's to change others in situations or to run a mile in under 10 minutes, which just seems like a really hard these days, in the, if we're fixated on those goals and the means of those limited or incomplete goals, what happens is that we often find ourselves in a place of, and this is the second characteristics, a place of either-or thinking, of polarization, of false dichotomies. All-or-nothing ways of thinking and relating to others that eventually restrict the options of our mind. If they don't do this or that in this way or that way, there's no way forward, right? Like, if I don't run harder and faster, I'm never going to get to my 10-minute mile. Right? I'm never going to get there if I don't just keep running. And so I've got to to run every day. I've got to get on it every day. I've got to go faster every day. I've got to increase the speed or decrease the speed. But I'm fixated on it. And so now there's only one way for me to reach my goal. And everything else, the incline or whatever, is against me. Everything else, if I don't get what I want, must be against what I want. People's particular operating patterns that might begin as simply as theoretical differences maybe that your spouse is different than you, maybe your coworker is different than you maybe your kids are different than you. what these things that might simply be differences become hardened into intense oppositional emotional commitments over even the most unemotional subject matters. Anybody ever experienced that? Ever been ones who have had those kind of those kind of reactions to people, or have been the recipients of those kind of reactions from people, right? That's what happens in our fixation. We get into an either or false dichotomies. Friedman argues that some intense polarizations, such intense polarizations are always symptomatic of underlying emotional processes underlying imaginations of the world and how we are to build and cultivate a life in our imagined world that we're running into something and we keep running into it and so like these intense polarizations are a manifestation they're a sign of something is really wrong with the way we're interacting with the world rigid dichotomies almost always hint that there is something wrong in the original orientation not with the people you're actually in conflict with that these false dichotomies, these us versus them, are always, always hint that there is something wrong in the way you're oriented to the world, not necessarily in the person you're in conflict with. Polarization that permeates our culture is not new to humanity. In Jesus' day, multiple factions within the Jewish community differed with such intensity that even cordially associating with a person from another group was seen as a betrayal to your group. Sounds familiar, right? The isolating thinking led to false dichotomies. Either in Rome, said the zealots, or be ended. Either play the game, said the Sadducees, or be played by it. Either separate, said the Essenes, or be incorporated into it. Either keep the law, said the Pharisees, or keep God away. Like the problem solvers mapping out the route between Europe and Japan in the years leading to Columbus, the groups in Jesus' day could not imagine a third possibility to life whole and holy. They could not imagine another piece of land between where they were and where they wanted to be. And so they, like us, miss the truth that Friedman points out, that the differences in any system, whether it is a marriage or a legislature, rarely determine the intensity of the differing. It's not the differences and the the degree of difference that we're at, but rather, like in baking or examining an institutional mix, it's the interaction of ingredients is almost always a function of the temperature and pressure of the environment. When troubled couples, for example, make a breakthrough, often the issues they differed over have not gone away, but the two sides have become less reactive to the differences they've turned down the heat and pressure heightened on the treadmill often because they've reframed the question. Friedman argues that in the search for the solution to any problem, questions are always more important than answers because the way one frames the question is the way one frames the problem. And that predetermines the range of answers that we can conceive in response. So if your map and model say that the only way to your desired destination is through these people, overcoming those people or issues or limitations, even if the limitation is yourself, then you'll only conceive of answers that have you get what you want by going through those people, fighting with them, eliminating them, compromising with them, oppressing them, avoiding them, taking advantage of them. What is true of nations and groups is true of marriages and offices, friendships, spirituality, and even parenting. Friedman, in all of his, all of his family interactions, he discovered that there, there is a rather common story of this cycling through non-answers rather than reframing the questions kind of place that we get stuck in. He says that it happens a lot with with moms particularly, that there is a mother who is perpetually trying to seek answers to the question of how to make her child more responsible. As a parent, I can identify with this. And she will be on a frustrating treadmill, says Friedman, until she is able to focus on her own development rather than her child's. And he tells this story. For example, there's one mother spent years trying to find new ways of getting her kids to do their homework, which actually was like, a good, like, three hours of our afternoon as a family, despite the fact that she knew she had been completely ineffectual in her efforts. She spent years trying to get her kids to do the homework, and they would never just do their homework. They would never just get up and, and go do it. There was always this perpetual, you need to do it, you need to do it, you need to do it. Because in her heart, like, what she needed was she needed her kids to be responsible. And if they did her homework, that means they were responsible. And they would be responsible. And if they did their homework, they'd be responsible kids who could be, have responsible lives. And you know, like, it's that important, right? Because if you didn't do your homework right on time exactly when it was due, and you never failed or struggled with it, then of course like, you're going to have a perfect life, right? Right? No? OK, maybe not. So finally one day. The mom said to the kids, this is crazy. Me yelling at you all the time, me getting on you all the time, me having to do this to you all the time is absolutely crazy. You're actually going to save me a lot of money if you don't go to college. So from now on, every time you catch me commenting on your schoolwork, you can find me a dollar, because that's going to save me a bunch of money. As a result of reframing the question, says Friedman, from how do I motivate my kids, fixated on this treadmill of how do I motivate my kids, To how do I regulate myself? How do I I better orient myself to the realities of what's going on in my life, in this world, how how I'm relating to my kids, and my kids are relating to their their school? How do I better regulate myself? She not only found them doing far better, the kids actually began to take responsibility, but a chronic backache that had bothered her for years mysteriously disappeared. The chronic anxiety of emotionally persistent efforts for what we think as are the right and only answers for breakthrough, some invisible barrier of changing another for life to be good. This constant, emotional, persistent effort that we put into what we think are good and right answers, things that we absolutely need, these, these things that we can just see on the other side of something that's blocking us, but in truth are actually the wrong questions and the wrong problems. Kept this mother and her family from flourishing, and they do the same for you and I. She was bound by the inability to see life another way. And Jesus knew that for His disciples, as well as for you and me, to truly experience the fruit of faith, for life in a new world, a new covenant, a new self, a life of flourishing and not withering, of prospering in all that we do, as the psalmist said, we, like that mom, need an imaginative breakthrough. We need to see the world differently. So, how do we get there? How do we see the world differently? More specifically, how did Jesus' words help us get there? And I'm going to go super fast. Yeah, Yeah. you ready? You ready to run? Okay, so first, Jesus addresses the try-harder treadmill. Jesus' words... Okay, so let me say this, just, just to point out. So again, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount before. So what I'm about to say, I'm not going to give you, here's what the Greek said, here's why I've translated it this way, here's why we're paraphrasing it this way. That, all that content is going to be in two places. It's going to be on the sermon notes, which will be posted with the sermon. It'll be linked back to our post-sermons on this, where we work it all out in detail. So I'm assuming you're going to have questions about some of the things I say and some of the, the factuality of some of the stuff. That's cool. That's great. All the way for you to research those facts are found on the the line. They'll be posted up later this week, okay? So just hang with me, run with me. When the doubt comes, when you're like, eh, what? Where's that coming from? You can find the references to it later, okay? Cool? All right. So Jesus addresses the try harder treadmill, first and foremost. The word we translate blessed is not a word seeking something. It is a word that Raymond Brown points out, that is not a part of a wish and not to invoke a blessing rather it recognizes an existing state of happiness or good fortune to say blessed is actually to say blessed blessed already are you happy favored whole complete not your becoming it's not a wish it's what it is the first statement of each beatitude then affirms a quality of spirituality that is already present a wholeness and completeness that already exists that you already exist within And the second statement affirms a future that allows us even now to live a happy life. And maybe that's key, right? We get the already part, but we kind of read the second part as uh, like, if I do X, then I'll get Y, right? How many of you have read the Beatitudes like that? If I do X, I get Y. If I'm poor in spirit, then I get the kingdom of God. If I'm forgiving, I'm merciful, I I get mercy, right? That's not how the Beatitudes are read. The second statement affirms a future says what is true of your future, so therefore you can live in the blessedness already. So instead of reading blessed are the people who do X because they receive Y, the Beatitudes should be read like this. Already happy are you utterly dependent on God's presence and power, for you have it. Already favored are you who feel the losses in life for refreshment and strength are yours that's what comfort actually means already whole are you appropriately angry and evidently gentle that's what meekness means again you can reference back to where we we say it means that for you are at peace amid chaos already happy are you whose truest always there desires drive you for you have your daily feel Already favored are you who illogically and inconceivably forgive, for you have what you share. Already whole are you laborers for wholeness and health, for your living on your inheritance, your vocation, what what was made for you and given to you. Already happy are you in conflict with the old world self-maps and models, for, living in and by, for you are living in and by something new. Already happy, favored, and whole are you in the run-ins and put-downs. For you are distinctively with Jesus. For those blessed to be a blessing, called to call others, shown to reveal in word and deed a world different, have always led a life with a bit of tang. That's what Jesus says. He takes us off the treadmill. The treadmill gets us nowhere. Jesus says, you're already there. The treadmill keeps us running for something to try to gain something, to get something, to break through something. Jesus says, why are you trying to break through? It get through. You're actually already in it. And taking us off the treadmill, there's nowhere to run if we're already there. Jesus turns down the temperature and pressure to find it, fix it, and get it right, visions of the kingdom, doesn't he? Jesus turns down the temperature on you trying to fix it, get it right, get in on it, understanding of life with God and others. Notice how Jesus, turning down the temperature, getting us off the treadmill, saying, listen, why would you run in place when you, to, to no end when you could just live already at the place, right? Turning down that pressure of trying to figure it out, trying to fix it, find it, get in on it, as if it's some sort of map or discovery or something that you can do to get there. He then addresses the second characteristic of imaginative gridlock, the either-or dichotomy of life with God that conflates happiness and wholeness, a life of peace, with a lack of differences and conflicts between others, authority, and personal responsibility. Jesus, again, I'll say it one more time, Jesus well, he, he takes us off the treadmill by making it all ready. He, he turns down the temperature and in doing so actually pulls us out of our either-or dichotomies because he addresses directly this conflation that we have with happiness and wholeness. It's somehow if we're happy and whole in God, that we'll lack differences, we'll lack conflict with others, authority, and we'll lack, we won't have to be responsible for anything. Look at what, what Jesus says. He says living a whole and holy life full and forever includes being utterly dependent mournful because you suffer or cause suffering you living a whole and holy life means you lose and you experience loss you feel it you're just not ended by it right it means being angry for a good reason which means there's good reason to be angry it means daily longing. Hunger and thirst are not a one-time satisfaction thing. Right? Hunger and thirst, after relating rightly with God and others, is a daily longing. Every morning you wake up, you're hungry and thirsty again. Right? Every day, you have wants for something more, needs for something more, desires for something that's important. Right? That you need forgiveness. You need mercy, right? Which assumes what? That you've done things that need forgiving of. That you've done things that, that require someone to be merciful to you. That you are pure in heart, which means open to God. You are relationally responsible with God. The, the purity is not simply I follow all the rules. The purity is that I have a complete vulnerability and um, transparency before God. A single-heartedness. So there's a relational responsibility that you have to actually return and reciprocate relationship with God. It's not just a one-way street. That you're responsible for cultivating health and wholeness. You were actually made to do something and to do it well and right and good. That you will actually be harassed in doing that thing. That you'll be reviled and persecuted and falsely spoken of. That doing that thing will not be easy will actually be counter to the way a lot of life seems to operate. Essentially, what Jesus does is saying this to us. He removes the other as an obstacle to life, whole and holy. You notice that? Not by assuming that life will be without difficulty, but rather that difficulty of getting what or where we desire, so that a whole, happy, forever favored life, right, is not itself is itself not the thing that keeps us from reaching our destination. The difficulty is baked into the kingdom. The difficulty you experience isn't the blockage from getting to your destination. The struggle isn't the blockage that's keeping you from living whole and holy, right? Because it's baked in. It's assumed that you're experiencing these things. A whole, holy, full and forever life with God and others, the life we desire That we can see on the other side of the glass is not a life free from difficulty or responsibility. It is filled with it. So difficulty and responsibility are not keeping you from it. It's pretty incredible, right? Pretty freeing, right? Because we've all felt the difficulty and the tension of responsibility. And we all fight against the difficulty and the tension of responsibility. But Jesus says, why? Why are you fighting those things? That's just a part of it. Those aren't keeping you from it. So what is keeping you from it? And turning it again, once again, turning down the temperature and pressure, the intensity to perceived opposition, Jesus takes head on the final evidence of chronic anxiety, a fixation on fixes rather than reframing the questions. And doing so allows us to be reoriented to a new world. He gives us a different map and model of life with God and others. The first and final thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, in this kind of first section, is he changes the question. Remember, he's already said, blessed, already happy, favorable and whole, puts us squarely in the place we desire to be. We're not trying to get somewhere. We're not trying to run to somewhere, right? But then he says at the end, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And this draws us purposely into the flow of the movement. Not, you will be the salt of the world if you get all this right. You will be the light of the world if you figure this out. No, he says you are by your very existence salt. So don't be something you're not made to be. That's how you lose your tanginess. That's how salt loses itself. It's diluted in something other than itself. It's diluted by some sort of concentration other than itself. When it's sprinkled into things, it brings flavor or, or allows to per- things to, to pres- be preserved, right? But when it's drowned in something else, it loses its saltiness. You're, so you're already the light of the world. You can't not be the light, but you can cover the light up. You can hide the light. Like, your life in me, my life in you, like, you are salt and light. You are salty and you are light. You are purposeful. You have purpose already baked into you. Already in all you are, in all that you're in the middle of. You are distinct, whole, holy, tangy, and revealing simply by living in his life and presence. Right? Simply because he lives and you live in him. This is our actual existence. So the question is no longer how do i become happy how do i overcome what do i do to overcome to be happy what do i do to be happy what do i have to overcome to be happy or even how do i get to my purpose which how many of us have asked that question to where i'm living it and doing it how many of us has felt the anxiety and restlessness of that the question moves from how do i be happy how do i get to my purpose to what dilutes or covers the person and state in which I already exist? What's keeping me from actually being holy and truly? Where and who I'm supposed to be in Jesus? It's a completely different question. It's not a question of what I have to discover and get through. It's a question of what's keeping me from actually living the fullness of it. Remember, at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is going to answer this more thoroughly as we go out through the rest of the sermon, but this is where he gets us, takes us immediately. It sounds a lot like what Jesus is after is what Paul learned. The secret of facing whatever is out there and whatever is about to be, right? That that Jesus wants us, like Paul said and we talked about last week, to learn to be content. That we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And remember, contentment is not just be happy and don't, don't complain. Contentment is literally, by definition, a state of self-sufficiency in relationship with life itself. The experience of being sufficient within, possessing the ability, competence to flourish in my life, in every circumstance in which my life is lived, because, in the words of Jesus, I am distinctively with Jesus. So, how are you experiencing imaginative gridlock? What dilutes or covers your dependence your morning lifeless less in others? What keeps us from doing that? So um, because of time, it's okay. We are okay to go a couple of minutes over? Yeah. Okay. So so we're gonna have a moment to reflect on this, right? So, so so how are you experiencing a magic gridlock? That's the question. Like where are you on the treadmill? Living in false dichotomies, and this either-or mentality, this continued search and search and search and search for answers, but never finding the answer because maybe the question's wrong, right? Like, In what ways are you experiencing imaginative gridlock? What dilutes or covers up your tanginess, your distinctiveness, your life already in God? So what we're going to do for just a second is I'm going to reread the Beatitudes. This will stay up on the screen the whole time, but I'll reread the Beatitudes. And remember, like we talked about last week, a part of us learning to to flourish is starting to recognize that anxiety, anxiousness, restlessness isn't always bad. Like it actually is a signal telling us that something is off, that we need to learn something, listen to something, do something different. So as I read these words, pay attention to your heart rate, to your racing thoughts, to your tightening stomach. And when you feel those things, ask the Spirit to examine you and see what's going on to show you what the psalmist would say are your disquieting thoughts and see if, if there is any way in which those kind of things that are off are, are, are affecting the way you're building your life that maybe leads to grieving rather than to flourishing. Make sense? So if you, if, if you kind of get stuck along the way and like as you're asking the Spirit, I'll... There will be a little prompt question up here. Whenever you feel the urge of being what's said, when, said, when you fill this, kind of, this kind of pool, just stop, and if you need to ask some questions, just think about what context the Spirit's bringing to mind, what memories the Spirit's bringing to mind, and then just ask the question, if, if you don't have any other question, why did Jesus' words unsettle your heart? Like, what about these things unsettle me? And then just listen. And listen, we're going to only get to do this for a few minutes, but everything that we're doing right now will be up on the website tomorrow with a guided guide to help you walk through it in your own time with the Lord this week, in community, and gospel community, in your DNA group, or whatever. So this won't be the only time. But this will be the beginning, okay? So let me, let's do this. Will you bow your heads with me? Or look down at the ground, whatever you're most comfortable with. Take a deep breath. As you breathe in, breathe in already whole. As you breathe out in Jesus. Do that a couple more times. Breathing in. Already whole. In Jesus. Already whole. In Jesus. And then listen to me as I read. Paying attention to your body. And when you feel your body, re- when you feel your body, reacting to the words, stop listening to me, and ask the Spirit. Cool. Already happy are you utterly dependent on God's presence and power, for you have it. Already favored are you who fill the losses in life, for refreshment and strength are yours. Already whole are you appropriately angry and evidently gentle, for you are at peace amid chaos. Already happy are you whose truest, always there desire drives you, for you have your daily fill. Already favored are you illogically and inconceivably forgive, for you have what you share. Already whole are you laborers for wholeness and health, For you're living on your inheritance. What was made for you and what's given to you. Already happy are you in conflict with the old world, the old self maps and models. For you are living in and by something new. Already happy, favored and whole. Are you in the run-ins and put-downs? For you are distinctively with Jesus. And all those blessed to be a blessing, called to call others, shown to reveal in word and deed a world different, have always led a life with a bit of tang. I'll be quiet for a few minutes.